This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. So you've made the decision where to study architecture. You've chosen your school and your degree path, so now what happens? How much work is this going to be? Do you need to start preparing now to be equipped to do certain things and have specific skills ready to go? We covered some issues in part one, and now we're going to finish the task off with summarizing what it's like to start architecture school. Welcome to episode 132, Architecture School, part two. Today's episode is brought to you with generous support from Construction Specialties. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are back to finish the task we began in episode 131 and discuss the process of starting architecture school, but you're actually like in the building now. Yeah. We talked about... Preparatory was the last episode, but yeah. Yes. Before you actually like, what path should I consider? and Why would I want to go to one school versus another? Now we're going to talk about you're in the building classes, coursework, dedication, mm-hmm. time, requirements, type of classes you might take, skills you might want to think about, classes that you aren't required to take that you ought to consider thinking about taking, <laughs> that sort of thing. So, you know, Andrew has done the heavy lifting because he lives this stuff, right? And while I can talk about all these things, they're all jaded with, well, back <laughs> in my day, this is what we used to do, you know, and that's not helping anybody. Yeah. And I try not to do that, even though sometimes I still find myself going, man, back in my day, it was different. <laughs> yeah. No, I plan on... Even now... I'm going to do some of that on this episode, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, actually, because of that reason, and because there's so much information here, on one hand, this is a simple topic for us to have a discussion about, because those of us who've been through architecture school, we all have stories. I remember a lot about the six years that I spent in college, getting my five-year degree. Yeah, for sure. But on the other hand, this is a difficult subject to cover because all the various programs that are out there, they vary, I won't say wildly from one another, but there's no one methodology that is unilaterally applied to all of them. Yeah. I mean, the schools are no different than opinions, right? (laughs) Everybody's got like 10. (laughs) Yes. Well, and actually, Andrew and I were kind of yelling at each other before the show. and I was like, that's not what I'm trying to say. And it had to do with, there was a lot of research that went into this. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make sure that I was a little bit more current from my side of the conversations. I went to my alma mater, UT, and I'm looking up at the coursework and trying to understand, is there a, the whole first you crawl, then you walk, then you run methodology that's put in place, which there mm-hmm. clearly is. Maybe we'll get into that. Maybe we won't because it's not the same. Not everybody's got that kind of structure to their program. They cover that stuff, but maybe it's not in that specific order. You'll cover light and shade and color and volume and positive space and negative space. And like, you'll go through problem solving exercises, but it's not necessarily step one and everybody does it. Yeah. I would say that there is that at most schools in the research that I was doing, looking at just Bachelor of Architecture programs. It's not always easy to find that information clearly. Mm -hmm. Even you, you were hoping it was going to be something like first year is structured about this in three sentences and it's not. You kind of have to dig into the the actual coursework and see what's happening to understand it. So, and in some instances, one of the ones that I think does it really well, that explains what the program is about is like Cornell. You can go and you can look and it sort of says, 
here's these areas that we talk about and here's where we touch on them in the curriculum. But that was a rarity I found in looking at 40-something ones of those. Yeah, I want to say, didn't we give them a shout out like a couple of, I don't know if it was, you know, all these shows start to blur together at some point from a timing standpoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we were talking about how hard it is to navigate architectural school websites a lot of times. Mm-hmm. You're correct. When I went to go try to learn something about this is make sure that I didn't say something that was just like categorically wrong and in, like just false, right? Yeah. We try to prepare before we do the show. And, you know, I'll give a shout out to my school. It's there. It's not the easiest thing to get to, but it wasn't hard. It's just a little laborious because Mm -hmm. it'll say, here's a suggested pathway from start to finish for a five-year degree. And it tells you, you're going to take this class this semester and this class and this class. And then you're going to, next semester, you'll take these classes. Sure. You can click on every single one of them and a little pop-up box presents itself and says, this is how many hours you're in the class. This is the format at which it's teaching. Here's the goals and objectives that you're going to get. And it's summarized in about, I don't know, five to eight sentences. It's not a huge amount of data. Yeah, it's not much. Sure. To digest. So it's there, but it's not, here's one page. You can just start at the top of the page and work your way down. You got to click on this and then unclick and then click on that one and then click and take notes and write stuff down. That's even just the degree plan. But this sort of delineation of a clear thought process across all five years is hard to find. Like you got to dig in a little bit and then actually figure that out for yourself. And if you don't know anything, it may be hard. That was my point. Us looking at it, we can probably, by clicking through course descriptions, start to understand and put it together because we've been through it. But if you don't have any clue about it, that may not do you much good to click on all those course descriptions because (laughs) typological entomology of something, something may not make any sense to you. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was looking at it and you can click on the UT one. It'll say, all right, there's an emphasis on inhabitation, including body light movement. And you're like, okay, so light movement, this is what we're looking at. And if I click on the the next semester's version of that same class, it'll say, well, now we're talking about color, material, and texture. Mm-hmm. You can work your way through each semester of each year and you get to the next one. It talks about structural systems, construction methods, and materiality, spatial and formal composition, like at a building scale. Mm -hmm. Now, the disconnect for that is when you read in third semester design that you're going to be working those things at the scale of a building, then you have to go, all right, well, my critical thinking skills or whatever tells me that I'm doing some of this stuff not at a building scale before that moment. Yeah. So it's there. But like I said, you can't just start. It's not a straight path. You've got to like you got to probably take some notes, like, you know, and start like checking the boxes, make yourself a little rubric of stuff that you got to do. Yeah. So we're going to get to that a little bit more because it comes up. And part of the reason I went looking for it is because well, there's some broad area topics that we wanted to discuss. And knowing this information is more germane in those points than it is just now. So we started off by saying, now you're in the building. What might you be studying? Like what happens? We covered a little bit of this in the last episode, but one of the things that, and this was interesting, maybe it's just easy to start into this by a little anecdote, like how it was for me. Unlike other majors, architecture students generally start day one, semester one, freshman year in the architecture program. That's pretty typical. Yeah. You don't take a bunch of prerequisites that don't apply to the program. You're like in it. It's major specific from the get-go. Yeah, from day one. Yeah, yeah. And what was interesting is, I want to say out of of all the classes that I took, there was only one required class my freshman year, certainly my first semester, 
that counted towards my degree path that was open to non-architecture students. Mm, mm-hmm. That was the Architecture Society class. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like a type of history class. It's an introductory class, like an overview. Yeah, when what was interesting is it was the only class that I took that had like 200 people in it. All the rest of my classes had like 12. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even though I went, I went to a big university. Even your physics class? I figured that would have had more than 12. That would have been another big one. No, it wasn't a big one because... Oh. The physics class, like I was saying, that was that was for majors and pre-med people. I mean, it was in an old school lecture style room. There might have been 40 in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that architecture society class, that was a huge room. Huge, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was tough. We have one like that. It was tough because it was all slides because we're talking about buildings and what is he doing? He's putting pictures of buildings up and the professor was this guy named Larry Speck who was, he's a really, really good public speaker. He has a very nice mm-hmm. kind of tempo and cadence to how he talks. Well, you go in and it's a theater. So you're sitting in padded, cushioned seats. In almost the dark, yeah. They turn the lights down low. And he's up there and he talks like this. And it's very smooth. And he's telling you, this is this, what's what going on? And man, that class was so hard to stay awake in. <laughs> I struggled. Yeah. But if you have the option, don't take those in the morning. Sometimes you don't because that's when they're given. But yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't know if we have this in the notes or like, I mean, there's nothing specific to it, but it just popped into my brain. I don't know if this is true at A&M where you teach. I don't even know if this is still true at UT where I went to school. But because of the type of classes we took, the fact that there were so few people that were actually in them and so few people that are actually allowed to take them, that I never had any problems getting any other classes on my schedule. And we were told that's because the architecture students had priority when it came to queuing for classes. So if I want a class and it needs to be Tuesday from nine to 10, I was going to get it because chances are all the other architecture classes that I had to take as part of my degree path are offered once. And this is the one time that they're offered them. So all my other kind of curriculum had to fill into the gaps between it. Mm -hmm. So all my friends are like scrambling. Oh, I wanted this class, but I didn't get in. Oh, I want it this time, but I didn't get it. Not once in all my time in school did I not get the class I wanted at the time I wanted it ever. And that was never true for anybody else. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, because they're also specialized and there's not a ton of them. So it's not like they're offering that one class, four different sections in a semester. There's one class with 20 people in it. Yeah. And that's it. So that's it. Yeah. You're in the room at that time. Yeah. And we'll get to it because we talked about it with the studios we have and the drawing classes we have. And with all the certain classes we take, there's a lot of class time. Mm -hmm. So the holes and gaps that you had to take the coursework that you were required to take that was not within the architecture program, man, you got in. That part of it was great. I assume it's still the same because looking at the curriculum that's listed online, that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, the number of classes, the number of hours you're in class, I mean, it's still a lot. So, So let's go back to the... When you start the type of coursework you might get, because you might think as a freshman architecture student that you're going to design a building when you walk in the room. And that is not the case. Yeah. I think I told you in the last episode, the first building I designed was for Sea Ranch. Mm-hmm. It was the last project of my freshman year in college. Freshman year. Yeah. Your first year. Yeah. Everything else I did was mass and composition and color and positive and negative space. And it was like, they're just trying to lay the groundwork for how you see, how you compose, how you work through things. Mm -hmm. There was no building. I didn't design a building at all my first year. Yeah. A lot of it is about 
design process. It's about trying to learn and understand the process and that process of looking at things from a different perspective, synthesizing them together into something new, or just looking at something from a different perspective and trying to turn it on its head and do something different with it. Yeah, It's about working through that process. It's funny, one of the things I think that seems to get lost now, in my opinion, is the sense of iteration. When we were in school, I feel like iteration was king. You had to do 20 different iterations of something to get there. And, and now with the computer, you'd think it would be faster, but I find students are more, I don't know, they hang on to those computer iteration, like a single iteration. Mm -hmm. They're much more valuable than all of our little five-minute sketches where you get like, oh, that's not right. Throw it away, start over. That's not right. Throw it away, start over. But now the computer ones seem like they've got more value for some reason to students that they can't trash it and start a new one. It's hard to reset it. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. You know, I, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like, you know, the version of trace paper. I didn't have to save it as a file name if I'm going to have like 12 versions of it. Yeah. So it's like final, 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 this is really final, underscore final, really final, you know, whatever, like those kind of, we all find those files like that in our servers now. Yeah. So. But it's easy just to go one, two, three, four, five. You don't have to overcomplicate it. They're optimistic. They're like, this is it. It's yeah. final. <laughs> this is it. This is it. No, no, no. No, no. Nope. This one, this was final, final. And then they're committed at that point. So. And we'll talk uh, about that aspect a little bit later, but yeah. I'm sure we will. Well, the other thing that we get into is if I think about some of the projects that I worked through, there was drawing that happened. So for example, Studio. Everyone refers to studio as this thing. It's almost like it, it exists just like you as a human being exists, as opposed to it's a space where something happens in. Mm -hmm. So we had at UT, there's two studios you take as a freshman. You take a design studio, and then you take a visual communication studio. Mm -hmm. And the visual communication studio, that's like when you're doing drawing exercises and sketching exercises, and they bring in models and you're doing live model nude sketches yeah which that was a whole thing let me tell you about that it was awesome but not for any of the reasons that yeah 18 year old bob was looking forward to <laughs> so yeah and i think the thing about that though is one of those things to look through like we were talking about earlier of clicking through the courses is you can find out whether or not you're going to be doing those things in the first year because i can tell you that Depending upon the school, I find that there is a, a wide debate about whether or not hand drawing and sketching are still useful. And so some schools don't even bother with that. And other schools definitely have hand drawing classes, even hand drafting classes that you learn that stuff first before you do anything in the computer. So those are variables as well. When we start looking at programs, there's a different idea of thought about those things. All right. Well, let me ask you this. So we had color exercises for us to understand primary colors, secondary colors. Color theory and all that kind of stuff, yeah. All that kind of stuff, we got into it. Mm -hmm. So to build upon your comment about analog versus digital work, mm -hmm. I had lunch with a guy the other day, and his son was starting his third year of architecture school at Notre Dame. Mm. And he was saying, this is their Rome year. He goes, like, they spend the entire year. If you're an architecture student, you go to Notre Dame, you're going to be in Rome for this year. Yeah, for a year. Yeah, for the year. A year. Yeah, not a semester. And not a semester, then a break, then a semester. Like, you're there yeah. for the year. You got to get a visa. Yes. And the dad's in the business. He's not an architect. Mm -hmm. He's a developer. No. And he was making a comment about, and it came across with a little bit of like, isn't this interesting? This is like prideful. He's like, they don't use computers. Like, he hasn't used a computer for anything yet. 
And I'm surprised at how fast everybody is quick to point out like, oh, in my degree, they won't even let us use a computer until we get to this level of education, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting because I don't know that you have to not do one versus the other. I mean, especially since the example I gave about my own alma mater, I have a design studio, I have a visual communication studio. Why can't I do both? Both. You can still teach me how to do life drawings and understand positive and light and shade and tone, all that kind of stuff. The same time I'm using SketchUp or 3D Max or something else over here to do whatever Mm -hmm. it is I got to do. Yeah. You can do both, but I always thought it was interesting that just like, it's quick. And this has been going on for years, how quick people are to say, oh, my school won't let me use computers. Yeah. Well, I mean, or go one way or the other to me because they're like, oh, yeah, no, we're doing Rhino with grasshopper add-ins and whatever these other hippopotamus and all this stuff, you know, our second semester. You know, you're like, well, okay, wow. Well, you know. <laughs> so, again, I think that all just depends on the on the actual program and the, the theory and methodologies that that particular school wants to use and push forward. I find that it's split. There's not a – everybody's definitely doing A and nobody's doing B. It's kind of like, well, they're everything. Seems like it'd be reasonable as a jump off point to say there's some of both going on all the time. Sure. All the time. And I would also think that architecture schools would benefit from not only listening to this podcast <laughs> in general for the kind of kernels of boots on the ground wisdom that we provide, but I think it would be interesting. This is something that I've always struggled to, to wrap my brain around. It should tell you, this is the software that you're going to be using. You know, because we've talked about it before. If you're going to use the software, they don't really teach you how to use it. That's what YouTube is for, apparently. Yeah. That's not part of it. So these kids reach out to me and they say, hey, and I'm telling them half of them, I'm giving them partially good advice. Like the advice they're getting is great advice, but it's incomplete because they'll say like, hey, I'm going to go to architecture school. What sort of thing should I practice on? Like get myself ready. And I normally tell them about what they should be thinking about and how they should be able to articulate and pay attention to why they respond or like or don't like something mm-hmm. and be able to explain it. Like, why do you like this? Because uh, it looks good. That's a bad answer in architecture school, mm-hmm. right? You need to be able to say, well, I like this because it changes the mood of the room because the light's coming in here. You know, we have this non-reflective surface. You need to be able to think through why you feel the way you do when you look at something. That's the kind of advice that I would give them. Yeah. Comma, what I probably should be adding on to that is learn SketchUp or learn this platform or that platform or any of these various platforms, because at some point you're going to be generating documents using this stuff. But of course it's different by school. Mm-hmm. Some schools might use Rhino and Grasshopper and other ones are using SketchUp and Revit and other schools are using 3D Max and something else. You know, you just, I don't know. I can't keep up with all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's funny now, the longer I do it, I would say, learn all the Adobe stuff that you can. InDesign, Photoshop, Illustrator, those things, because those are going to be universal. Yeah, that's definitely true. As the post-production level of work, because almost whatever you do, any of those other programs that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be taking something into Adobe to fix it up and make it pretty for presentation. Yeah. So having skills in that would benefit you no matter where you end up. Yeah, that's solid. That's hard to teach. That's solid advice. That's also hard to teach because I've got some students right now like, ooh, can you sit down and like teach us Photoshop? And I'm like, I, uh, I don't really know that I can do that. Uh, that's a tough challenge just to say that. Yeah. But yeah, that's tough because no one ever sat down and said, okay, let me teach you how to hold, use a pencil. Right. I mean, yeah, I know, yeah. I'm not trying to make light of it. 
because we did draw and they did say like, here's how you should mm-hmm. use your pencil work. Like there's tips that they told us to make things look better Then you'd look and you'd see how your buddy's doing it over there. And you're like, wow, his looks pretty good. I'm going to start doing that. And eventually you kind of evolve into the way that you do it and it, people respond to it favorably. So you lean into it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Software's different. But I, I will also say that not only is learning all the Adobe suite, like solid school information, those are good. You're going to get a job. Awesome. We use all that stuff mm-hmm. right now. I use two of those things today. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into the, this is the part that I think is going to be the most interesting part other than the question at the end of the show. <laughs> Because this is what everybody hangs their hat on. This is what they think about the most. There's horror stories out there. Everyone's got these urban legends and they're like, oh my God, I didn't sleep for 39 days in a row. And it's how much work is it? Yeah. And give me one answer for that. If I said, hey, Andrew, think about sending my son or daughter to architect school. How much work is it? What would you say? Just boom. What's the answer? I would say it's a lot of work. (laughs) It's literally word for word. What I, I was like, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but I don't know how to phrase it. It's a lot of work, but it evolves over time. It's a different amount of work in year one than it is in year four or five or six. Yeah, because you understand your own workflow better. So you become quicker at getting to where you want to be because now you're not trying to learn a new software. You're not trying to learn a new technique. You're not. There's certain things that you have more mastery of in your fourth year than day two at the school. Sure. And, but as you and I both know, the trick to that is that there's always more architecture to do. Always. <laughs> Even though I get faster at one thing, guess what? There's another thing right after it that yeah. I can do. So, More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. I'm sitting down today with Jason Ellis, Senior Business Development Manager, Interior Product Solutions. Jason has been with Construction Specialties for 12 years and was previously the Operations Manager for Acrovin Doors as Business Unit Manager for Cubicle Curtain and Tracks. This interior product experience led to his current role at Construction Specialties, where he can utilize his passion about providing better solutions for the built environment for the people who engage with these spaces. Hey, Jason, thanks for joining me today. appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Hey, Bob, thanks for having me. Well, look, since I have you, and this is why we're here today, I want to talk a little bit about construction specialties and the mastering movement initiative that you have in place, finding solutions that contribute to safe, resilient, and inspiring interiors is a goal for every designer. I think we can acknowledge that. How does construction specialties work with designers to help achieve this goal? Mastering physical movement when it comes to people and interior solutions, construction specialties, we've been doing this for 75 years now, and our main goal is to educate collaborate and partner with the architectural and design community. So whether it's around our entrance flooring systems, our impact resistant doors, or even our interior wall protection, which by the way, all of those products were actually designed and developed with a functional purpose, but having the ability to actually elevate the aesthetic design with them. And in some cases, they even serve as focal points. We wanna be that resource and partner to the architect and designer We want to be able to give them the confidence and the assurances when they're specifying these types of products, they know that ultimately they will be increasing occupant safety, reducing facility maintenance, and reducing life cycle costs. You brought up occupant safety and facility maintenance and life costs, all of which are very important considerations. This is something that I think architects focus on 
probably more than most people might be aware of. And companies like construction specialties, they're really there to help us take those considerations and bake them into the products and the designs that we're working with. Correct. When we're talking about those three specific pieces, the movement and flow of people comes directly into play because there's a direct impact on the interior resilience. Damage happens through daily use, not just actual abuse. So when you look at numbers like on average 2.9 million airline passengers cross through airports on a daily basis or 54,000 plus hotel properties in the U.S., which represent about 5 million guest rooms. But those guest rooms service 1.1 billion guests annually. That's a lot of traffic, especially in those major markets. And it's not from abuse. It's actually daily use. With the increased damage that can occur, the facilities actually start seeing increased maintenance costs and potential risk when it comes to occupant safety. And on the back end, both of those things become very, very costly to the owner. So in the end, what we're really wanting to do inside every building, we want that building to have the best chance to service those it was designed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. So architects should have a keen understanding of how the buildings they design are going to be used. But what considerations would you emphasize given your interest in intelligently built interior spaces? Well. While every project is unique and every project poses different challenges, there are three main aspects that, for me, remain constant. We need to make sure that we're protecting the walls, we're protecting the floors, and we're protecting the doors, because all three of those are vital components when we're talking about mastering the movement of people. The interior of these buildings essentially is the sum of their parts and how well they actually work together. So when architects and designers are coming together and they're specifying a specific system for a certain application, it becomes critical so that they have that confidence and assurance that what they're putting into those spaces can resist impact, is easily installed to a subcontractor or a general contractor or for the facility maintenance crew on staff. We need to make sure that these solutions can be maintained easily. Yeah. Jason, I appreciate you joining us today and speaking about the importance of mastering movements. I think all architects really think about the projects that they work on and how working with groups like construction specialties can help us deal with things like maintenance costs and occupant safety. And it's important. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about it. Bob, I appreciate you having me today, and thank you again, and stay warm. Yeah, thanks. Same to you. Construction Specialties has created a CEU specifically on mastering the movement of people in the building that architects are designing. This course is worth one AIA-LU or one IDCEC CEU or HSW, and is part of the Mastering Movement Academy presented by CS. Visit MasteringMovement.net to take this and other courses. Again, that's masteringmovement.net. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I'm pretty sure we could have an entire episode dedicated to how much work is it. We could tell all our tales of glory along with our tales of woe and horror. Woe, yeah. Like I used to tell people, hey, do you know out of all the people I went to college with, architecture students were the only ones that got a key to get into their building after hours. Because they're like, you're going to be here a lot. Here's a key to the building, mm-hmm. like to this yeah. public institution. 
we've been having arguments over that in our department lately. Oh, is it not doing it or starting to a- do About it? access to the building. No, about they've started to, especially since COVID, they started to limit access to the building. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're trying to make arguments about just because they have access to the building 24 hours a day doesn't mean we're telling them they have to be here 24 hours a day. But it allows them to come to work whenever it's best for them. Sure. As a creative person, you know, I mean, like you, for example, now you're waking up at 430 in the morning. Well, if you needed to go to the building and work at 430 because you were awake, you should be allowed to do that. Yeah. It's what it's what suits my life. Yeah. It's not we're saying, well, you should stay here all night long, but just that if that's when it happens for you, it happens for you. Yeah. That's not how I took it when they gave me my key in 1986. <laughs> I know. And that's how some students don't take it either. I mean, I didn't either. When it was the building was open 24 hours, guess what? I mean, I could be there 24 hours, but you kind of mentioned it a little bit last episode, but we try not to force that kind of time commitment, lifestyle, whatever you want to call it on students. Sure. Like they did more so back in our day where it was a little bit of a like suffer for the cause. Yeah. We're going to give you 30 hours of work and only 24 hours until it's due. To do it. Yeah. We try not to do that that much anymore, but it's to me, it's shouldn't matter like if i want to go to work whenever i want to go to work i should be able to go to work well so one of the things that's kind of that all right you have access to the building so you can work when you want to work Mm -hmm. which makes sense works out great you know whatever i wonder how much of that's different now because nobody worked in their apartment or their dorm when i was back in the day yeah when you were working on studio stuff you were in the studio a hundred percent of your time you had to be yeah and i'm not just talking about classwork i'm like you're building models, you're doing draw, whatever it is you're doing, everybody, every single person, when they were working, they were sitting at a desk yeah. in the studio in the architecture building. Nobody worked in their apartment at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a thing now because people can do that. They can just have their laptop and a monitor and they're good to go. Laptops. Yeah. As long as they're not doing physical models, they're pretty much capable of just packing up and leaving, which is, I think, a disappointment in some ways. And not because I think you should be there all the time, but there's a I mean, it's just like we've talked about when the offices were empty, right? There's a certain sort of chemistry and Mm -hmm. something that happens when you get a bunch of creative people together and you're able to energize and bounce off ideas of each other and all that kind of stuff. To me, that is an increased level of creativity when we're all being created together in the same spot. Yes. Now, you can tilt that boat either direction, right? And the way you described it is the way that... Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. And I did both of these. And I look back on my time in school and I go, you know what? I loved it. And I would say that there was, I would advocate that it was better the way that we're talking about than what it is now, because yes, there was an energy, there was a creative kind of vibe that was in the space and it was awesome. And you mm-hmm. had great conversations and I made friends that are still my friends to this day. It was great. I loved it. I loved all my time in studio. Mm-hmm. The bad part about it, and this is true for a lot of people, and honestly, it was not good for me sometimes. The same thing that when you look over and you see Mary's drawing on the wall and you're like, man, that's so much better than what I did. I need to step it up. You start getting this like Mm -hmm. forced competition, even if it's not stated, even if it's not advocated. Yeah. But when everyone pins their work up and you're like, their work is great and mine is terrible. You're like, I need to work harder. So next thing you know, you get all these people that are all working harder because everybody else is working harder and. I'm going to have more drawings. I'm going to have more models. I'm going to, that was a hundred percent a thing when I was in school. Yeah, me too. I guess, I mean, and I can't decide if you're saying that's toxic or not. I think it's great to a certain point. It's both. I think it's both. Uh, Yeah. I think it's really good to a certain point and then it can become too toxic. But I think actually what's funny for 
is that I'm about to make a totally selfish statement here, though, mm. is that the reason I like it is because there's a little bit of pushing that happens peer to peer that I don't have to do as a professor. Sure. Right? Sure. That leveling up or like, oh, how did you learn how to do that? That kind of helps everybody as opposed to me having to goad those people into it or tell them this is how to do it. There's a little bit of advancement, I think, that happens in that scenario that doesn't happen when everybody shuts their laptop and goes home. Yeah. And you work independently, yeah. right? Totally agree with all that. And you know what? And and we also talked a little bit in other episodes about yeah. not once in all the years I was in school did a professor ever tell me what was due for the delivery of my studio project. They didn't say, you will have these five drawings and they'll be on pieces of paper this big and you will. They're just like, yeah, it's different now though. I know. But that's what I mean. If If my professor gave me a, here's what your deliverable is, that's what you do. You work to what they tell you to provide. Mm -hmm. When they don't tell you that, yeah. and you're like, wow, look, at you've got all this Anna section and this part. Like, I, like next thing you know, uh, yeah. everybody starts doing all this extra stuff because- I've got to do more. You're yeah. going to be judged against the quality of the work of your peers. True. Pretend all day long yeah. that that's like, I'm just going to judge you on your own merits. Baloney. <laughs> right. There's no way that people can't be influenced by just looking at this amazing spread of drawings and models and like, wow, this guy's an amazing architecture student. Look at all the stuff they did. It's real. You know, I'm not saying it means that it's the best project who has the most work. No, not always. Yeah. But it, there is, I agree with you though. There is a certain judgment for lack of a better term of like, they were able to do all this work and you didn't. So I'm going to place a perceived amount of effort on that. Yeah. Right? You must've been screwing around a little bit compared to everybody else. Sure. Sure. I even had a friend of mine, and if we got together today, it probably wouldn't take an hour for this to come up if we're talking about architecture school. And it had to do with, he was a, well, to give him a credit that he may not deserve, but why not be nice to him? He's a smart guy, and he was a deep thinker. He was not a, I'm going to burn through 50 pencils, just chewing out ideas and 800 layers of trace. He'd sit there mm -hmm. and he would think, and he would draw something, and he'd go, no, and he'd erase it, and he'd adjust it. This is what he did. That's all he did. Professor would walk through the studio. And that's something else that used to happen all the time. Professors used to walk through studios at nine o'clock at night all the time. And they'd just say, I'm here. Like, clearly they'd been out having dinner or something. They thought I'd just swing by the, the studio. Mm -hmm. And they would sit down and they'd talk to me. And they're like, what are you thinking about? I go, well, let me go through the 8,000 pieces of trace paper ideas that I got. Then they'd get to him. And he's like, well, I got three pieces of paper. And they're like, did you just get here? you know, everyone else is working so hard. They're like, what are you doing? And he's like, I've been here just as long as everyone else has. You know, he just, he didn't have that quantity mentality. He's like, I'm just going to focus. I'm going to get where it needs to be. And if it's not right, I'm going to move off or I'm going to throw it away. And the teacher's like, don't throw it away. I want to see, and you could probably speak to this as a professor. I want to see how you got from A to Z. And if you erase it mm -hmm. or it all happens between your... Yeah, if you were B to Y, if you erase yes. all that. He's like, if it's all happening between your ears, I can't help identify like, hey, up until this point, you were going in a really interesting way. And then somehow you fell off the cliff and you ended up with this. Mm -hmm. So what were you thinking at this point before you fell off the cliff? He didn't ever have any of that stuff that you could talk about. That does make it difficult from an instructor standpoint, for sure. Yeah, I would think so. All right, so let's talk about other, other time requirements. So one of the things that we were looking at, Andrew and I were talking about before the show started, because I went online and I looked it up, and it had to do with credit hours, and I misspoke. 
in the last one. I mean, I know I had over 200 credit hours when I graduated in six years, but the five-year degree that I have now, if you went to go get it starting today, it's 161 credit hours. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know, for the most part, for the most part, if you take, I don't know, government 312, the three represents how many core hours you're going to get towards your degree. So that is a three-year credit class. Three hour. Yeah. Typically, why it's a three-hour class is because you're in class three hours a week. It could be an hour Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It could be 90 minutes, Tuesday, Thursday. But if it's a three-something number, it tells you it's a three-credit hour class, and that's because you're in class for three hours. Pretty straightforward. Or is it? Because that's not how it works for architecture school at all. No, not for architecture. So for fun, and by fun, I mean it wasn't fun at all. <laughs> the first semester at UT, for example, is 16 credit hours. And you're like, that doesn't sound too bad. You know, you got to get permission to go above 18. Yeah. But 16 doesn't, I mean. Yeah. Across five days a week, that's like three hours a day. You know, you're like big deal. Not that big a deal. Well, when you actually click on some of these, the amount of time you're actually in class, and this is different. If you're a business major, if you're literally almost every other, at least non-studio-based education, the number of hours you're in class is the number of hours you're getting credit. In architecture school, for example, this is in class. This is not you working in the classroom. This is lecture time. This is studio time. This is classroom, but in chair. You need to be there time. For 16 credit hours, mm -hmm. It was 27 hours of class time. A week. Yeah, a week. Yeah. The second semester was 29. So you got 32 hours, 32 credit hours your first year, and you were in class almost 60 hours for that same amount, of, well, 30, 30 hours a week on average. Mm -hmm. So that's when we got to that point earlier about if you need to take a government class and you need to squeeze it in between, like you're in class so much as part of your core architecture school curriculum that if you need to take that 11 o'clock government class on Tuesday, they're going to give it to you because you're in class all the other time. And think about that. That's six hours a day, your freshman year that you're in class. That's almost a job. Yeah. I can tell you right now, because my daughter, she just finished her freshman year in college and you know, she's got some pre-med stuff going on and she's got labs and that kind of stuff too. Man, she's in class and studio maybe maybe 21 hours a week, which is still a lot. Still yeah, a lot. It's like 20 hours a week. Yeah. But yeah, the studio and even some of the visual communication classes and things like that definitely skew your class time versus credit hour ratio. Yes. They're not the same. When you have business math and it's three hours, well, yeah, that's three hours a week. But when you have architecture studio and it's six hours, well, that's probably 15 yeah. hours a week that you're actually in the class. Yeah. Then you're going to end up having the doing the work part of it, which happens, which is yeah. even more. And yeah. so we're bringing it up, not to say that that's like a terrible thing. Again, I told you this and I'd say it again. I didn't ever hate any of the time I had in studio. I thought it was awesome. I enjoyed it. It was a good time for me. Mm -hmm. But when you think about your perception, when you go to college and how much time I'm going to do this and I'm going to go to the library and then I'm going to go, I'm going to go play Frisbee on the quad, you know, whatever it is that you want to say. Yeah. Architecture school, a lot of class time, a lot of studio time. You're in the building a lot and you just need to prepare yourself for that because yeah. the way that dynamic plays out, at least it did for me, 
all my friends that were not in the architecture school building, I never saw them. And I even wrote a post. I ought to see if I can I find it. It used to hurt my feelings. They would never say what they were doing. And, and I'd say, you never tell me what's going on. And they went, because you never come. And you never come. And they yeah, said, yeah. when you're available, you'll let us know. And then we'll tell you what we're doing. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, well, okay, that makes sense. It's still nice to be asked. <laughs> you know, it's like my, yeah. my heart feelings. Yeah, yeah. I would see mine on the weekends sometimes, but definitely not during the week. Yeah. It just so my, didn't happen. My non-architecture friends. Yeah, my core, my core friends to this day from college are architecture classmates. Hmm. I just saw them the most. I had the most access to them. And as a result, that became my, sure. my core group of friends. So a lot of class time, a lot of, lot of class time. And I want to say before we get out about how much work is it, one of the things that you'll learn or that you need to really pay attention to from the beginning is this idea of time management. You got to get really good at managing your time because that's a skill you need even once you start into the profession is time management. Sure. Yeah. But in school, it becomes really important. And we have a thing where you say, well, for every credit hour of class or every hour spent in class time, you should probably plan on spending two to three hours outside of class time mm -hmm. working on stuff. So if it's a six hour class then you should end up with 12 to 15 hours of time outside of class to work on those things. But especially in the beginning, I think one of the most critical things that I tell all my students is, however long you think it's going to take you, you're like, oh, I got to go do this drawing. It'll be two hours. You better give yourself twice that, four hours yeah. to finish the work. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to work for three hours to get this done. You should probably say I'm going to work for six hours and get it done. And being able to plan for that in the beginning will help you out a lot because that time management is what really gets you in architecture school of thinking you can get things done faster, especially as you get further along because you do get mm -hmm. more proficient mm -hmm. at some things and skills. But like we mentioned at the beginning, there's always something else. And so you'll, you may finish what you've done. You're like, well, now I'm going to add this other section or right. I'm going to do this one more thing because I did it. And it's, it just compounds. So time management is one of the most critical skills, I think, in architecture school to really try to work on and, and learn as fast as you can. Well, there's, a, there's an age kind of consideration to that as well. And I don't mean that as a positive or negative. It's just what I noticed. For example, mm -hmm. one of the things that we have down here to talk about is all-nighters. I'm pretty sure that I don't know if yeah. I pulled an all-nighter, it was on one hand and all I just did. I didn't do all-nighters. That was just not my thing. Now mm -hmm. there were times when I didn't leave the building, I would go sleep. We had a room that where we would just turn a lot. It was full of couches and we'd go in there and yeah, it had yeah. limited sun in that room. So we would go in there and the lights would be off and people would sleep. And I might only sleep for like a couple hours. I never did. Like, I haven't been asleep for nine days. Like, I never had any of that. And there were some older people that I was in school with. Man, they never did that. But what they did do that I noticed is they showed up eight o'clock in the morning. They got to work and they did their business and they got done. And they it was like a job is how they treated it. Yeah. And that's hard. I mean, if you're an 18-year-old just now free from the house, that's hard to do. Yeah. Because I can't, I pulled a lot of all-nighters. I shouldn't say a lot. I mean, I pulled one or two a semester for all the time I was there. So, I mean, again, that might be yeah. 10 to 12 total. But I mean, I did a lot of late nights and short sleeps, but pure all-nighters. I can only think of like one or two where I was like, I've been awake for 36 hours straight. And I did that once and I was like, I'm never doing that again because I was garbage. Yeah. It was the worst. I was the worst human being. And I, don't, I just mean that in the sense of like, I couldn't even function. And so it happens, but you shouldn't have to do that. Yes. You should manage your time so that that doesn't happen. Well, you know, part of it is, 
and I know some people don't want to do this. I go, don't sleep half the day. I mean, you need to get your rest, but you don't have to sleep from four in the morning till noon. Just trade some of that time for more reasonable time. That's all I'm saying. I know that people (laughs) are like, I'm an out out. That's what I love. But I would tell you that I was up there a lot of times late at night, not because I had stuff to do. I was done with what I needed to do, but it was like a party. Okay. There's stuff happening music's playing and oh yeah people go oh, let's go run get a coffee or whatever it is there was a lot of not working going on but i felt like all that was kind of important so even if i didn't have to be there because i had very specific things to do and to get done i would still stay up there even when i had checked all those boxes because then i could go do desk crits with people or when people ran down the street to get like a coffee or whatever i could be a part of that and that was fun and that's part of the college experience and oh yeah i wouldn't trade those those yeah. moments because they were awesome so, yeah, again, that kind of stuff doesn't happen when you're working in your no. apartment by yourself now. You just roll over and go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we have a section here that's called, there's no right answer. And you know, this is one of those yes. things that's particularly in the very kind of broad sense, architecture is the answer is usually based on where your values and priorities are set. So what that means is the same 10 considerations that I have are not going to add up to the same solution that your 10 considerations are going to get you to. Because mm-hmm. we value different things or there are no different priority or I put less emphasis on this as, as uh, something to be concerned about than that thing. And it's going to be different. So when there's no right answer, that generically, what that means to me is you're not all racing to the same finish line. That's not what you're trying to do. I would tack on and I haven't read all the notes in this section, but one of the things that I think is kind of important about that is when I think about all the best projects that I ever saw come out of studio, they didn't follow the rules. Hmm. What I mean by that is they usually had some kind of big idea that they were working on and that's what they were trying to articulate. And the people that made sure they had the right number of copy rooms in their program to their building that they were designing, those projects were never the best ones the ones that explored some kind of like really amazing concept about how a space is used or how people move through a building or those kind of ideas are rewarded in architecture school more so than your godlike Tetris abilities to program, you know, out a floor plan and you go, look, I got all the bathrooms in. And they're all the exact correct square footage. Yes. The reason that I put this here and the way I put the emphasis on it is really, and I see it a lot, for me, it has to do with the fact that up until you start architecture school, your education has been based on primarily that there is one right answer to every problem. Yes. When did this happen in history? This date. Two plus two, that's four. You know, all those kinds of things. And so realizing that that mentality doesn't happen in architecture and design and these creative endeavors, and that really it's your understanding, and like you mentioned earlier, right, your ability to explain why these things are the way they are or the reason that your answer is the right answer and not that there is one right answer. And I find it that I have when it's new students, whether they're incoming 18-year-old freshmen or career change people in their first year of architecture school. Also, I mean, we have conversation. They go, well, what, what am I supposed to do? What's the right answer? What should I do? And I'm like, I can't tell you that. Like, that's not, that doesn't exist. Right. Unless it's some sort of code thing. But for your design, I can't say this is the right answer. Right. Like it doesn't work that way. So even the feedback, because students get frustrated when as a professor you go, well, there's not a right answer. It's up to you to decide. 
I'm like, but you're going to give me the grade. And I'm like, but again, that's not it, right? It's about how you are able to articulate how you came up with the solution that you came up with and the reasons why your answer is the right answer. Yeah. Because everybody in here has got a different answer. Yeah. They're not all wrong and they're not all right. They have some reasoning and rationale behind it. I have a, and we should link to this post. There's over a thousand posts that are written on the lifeofanarchitect.com website. And there's a couple of them that I go, you know what? I really nailed it on that one. <laughs> and out of a thousand, there might be 20 that I look back on and I go, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, but man, that one spot on. And I wrote one. Chicken coops. That was a good one. <laughs> that one, not really, but you know, stuff happened. I know. But the one I'm talking about, I actually wrote in December of 2013. And while you brought this up, I went, I got a perfect quote about this. And the title of that post was mm -hmm. Architecture and the Art of Getting It Wrong. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote. I start off by saying architecture is not a trade. It's a craft. And it normally takes years of practice before you start to routinely exist in the delicate balance between programming requirements and artistic expression. So when I was doing research for this post and kind of trying to, I don't know, better myself back then, I found this quote. It's from a TED Talk from a guy named Sir Ken Robinson. And let me read what it's not super long. This is such a great quote. He says he's an educator. So he talks about kids will take a chance. If they don't know, they'll have a go. They're not frightened of being wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. What we do know is if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. And by the time they get to be adults, most kids have lost that capacity. They have become frightened of being wrong. And the reason that is, is because we stigmatize mistakes. We're running a national education system where mistakes are the worst thing you can make. And the result is, is that we're educating people out of their creative capacities. Picasso once said, he said, all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. And he goes, I believe this passionately, that we don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it. Mm -hmm. And I love that. So I wrote a whole blog post surrounding the fact that I'm on, he said it way better than I ever could have, but that was in my brain. And I went looking for this and I found it and I wrote this whole blog post about it. And it, it has to do with, there is no right answer when it comes to architecture. It's about the process of creating that architecture. And that's going to be different because of what every individual person brings to that process. How you teach your students to understand that out of the gate is hard. But as a student, if you can wrap your head around this concept, you're going to be light years ahead of your fellow students. Mm -hmm. And that was actually episode 115 also. I know. We brought it back up again. Yeah. And we talked about that whole thing. I think we actually turned it into a podcast, that one. Yeah. It's at episode 115. Yeah. I know. That's the point. That's how good it is. I mean, yeah. the whole thing, just working on it is trying to figure out when you're given a task. Don't get caught up in, we always talk about the big idea and that's a big part of what we're kind of getting around to is like, mm. there's no right answer. You've got to go through a process. You have to articulate what's important to you and it's going to equal something that hopefully you're proud of and matters to you when you're done. Yeah. One of my favorite stories about this, and I, want, I shouldn't say favorite, but I remember it the most because it made me the angriest I think I've ever been in architecture school. And now when I look back on it, it was kind of brilliant. But <laughs> so. When I was in grad school, I took a summer school and we were doing these two-week small charrettes and they had guests, like professional architects, come in and they were all conceptual. We just came up with ideas. I mean, there was a, there was a project and a site 
but the rest of it was conceptual and all we did was these big charcoal sketches and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. it was really abstract i mean and theoretical and i was killing myself in this one project to do all these drawings and this one guy his project was an egg on a little platform that's what his he ended up for his final project was this little egg on a platform and all the people were gushing over it and i was just like dude urgh. you know i was so mad because i'd like try to come up with all this stuff that made sense and was rational all this stuff and here he is it's like a little white chalked out egg <laughs> drawing and he's like there it is this is it on the edge of a cliff sounds beautiful they had more great things to say about that and i was like oh i was so mad yeah I mean, it makes me laugh now, but at the time I was like, oh, I can't believe he got away with that. <laughs> what a jerk. I, uh, I was not happy. He outsmarted everybody. Oh, yeah, he did. He did for sure. So there's another section that we want to talk about at the very end. Not the very, very end. The second to very end. The end of the informative part of the show. The pre-end. <laughs> and that is, what's it going to cost? That's a loaded question yeah. in so many, so many ways. It is. Because yes. all the different universities are going to have like, this is what their core hours per class to cost. Yeah. Tuition and all that stuff. But yeah. It's kind of yeah. what it is. And I'm always amazed that, because I'm paying for college right now, that you'll say like, oh, tuition is $18,000. And then you get your bill and it's $37,000. You're like, what? What happened? Yeah. That's the and fees part of all, right? You know? Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. And you go, well, I got room and board and athletic fees and facility fees. And like, it just, it goes Rex on fees and, on and yeah. On. Uh, da, 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 da. I always tell my daughter, I go, you better be using all this stuff because I'm paying for it. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. You better go to the library, the rec center, the copy center, the yeah, every day, every yes. day. <laughs> all of those. Every single day. So. Yes. And this is something I don't know. So I I need to lean on you for part of this because hmm. so at the beginning of the year, you get like, here's the class you're taking and there's a curriculum and, and most of the professors will publish if you need to go get a book or a supply or whatever it is that your immediate needs are. And just like when you were in grade school and they're like, go get a, the 64 count crayon box and three things of glue and yeah, glue sticks and four yeah. packs of construction paper, multicolors, you know, a box of Kleenex, like. The teachers are asking you to provision yeah. what they need for the class. That's kind of how that works. Architecture school is really no different. Yeah. There might be like, here's the computer. Here's the baseline computer that we think you ought to have ownership of to support the course power you need to run the graphic programs that we run. That's a part of it. Mm-hmm. Back in my day, they're like, here's this thing. It has all the triangles and the scale and the lead sharpener. And like it, it was the same. It was called Mr. Kid. Yeah, it was a yeah. box of all the kind of drafting supplies that we would end up using. I'm sure the equivalent now is go get this computer. Mm-hmm. A huge expense. And I used to think that we had it the worst until uh, I talked to my wife and she was getting her math degrees, her undergraduate and grad degrees in her math. And we buy these really expensive, beautiful photography, like only nine people are going to buy them books. Like there's not a huge market for architecture books because there's just not that many architects out there in the grand scheme of things right in the grand scheme of things yes so the books always seem to be crazy expensive yes you try buying a math book there's like only two people that want that book like i mean it's even less and the and like the type they got to set up is all these special characters and stuff do you hear how I set up like it, like they're printing the gutenberg bible or something they're rolling it on papers and having to set the individual letters i know that's not how it works but nowadays a lot of times you can just get your books 
online, like it's digital mm -hmm. and the cost of buying books might be pretty minimal mm -hmm. as compared to what it was back in my day. Yes. Is that still the case? Is that the case now? That's still the case. I think there's very few. I mean, if you take specific special seminars or something like that, there may be book requirements, but even that, most of the time you can get those online in some kind of digital format. Yeah. Or other times, for me, if I'll give my students the parts I want them to read digitally, right? I can do excerpts from books. The book load is a lot less, and even still, sometimes digital books are less than print books, but I find that for yeah. college textbooks, there's no difference. I mean, I think I paid $250 for an ebook for my daughter <laughs> last semester for something yeah. you're like, really? Come on. Well, so books are not really the thing that's going to gut punch you when it comes to cost. No. But you're going to have to buy supplies. You might have to buy model making gear mm -hmm. and there's print shops. And I would imagine that you, I remember last time I was in your studio touring it, you guys had like this whole array of 3D printers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I don't know how students pay for that. You know, they just pay for it. I mean, yeah, yeah. do they pay for by that time or something? Out of pocket. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, well, the thing I'm printing out there, like, well, it's 12 hours and 12 hours means that it, $14 per hour, so this is what it's going to cost you. Equals X number of dollars, yeah. Those model-making supplies, those are the ones that killed me, quite honestly. Mm. And so most of my supplies when I made models, I hated the blue foam. Hated it because it always looked garbage. It looked, none of it looked crispy and nice, and I hated it. So I never used it. I never used a, a, I never made a blue foam model in my life. And I say that with great pride. I don't think anybody does anymore anyway, but yeah. Well, I ended up using the model material that I bought the most, the most, and it's not even a close number two. If you had to guess, what do you think it would be? Guess. I don't know. Chipboard? Chipboard. For me, it was basswood. Well, I couldn't afford basswood. Basswood was like, I'd make one sweet model at the end of the semester yeah. out of basswood. And even then, it wasn't a guarantee that I would make a basswood model for every project I did. Because that stuff was crazy expensive. Sure. And I just didn't, I couldn't afford it. I didn't have the money for it. Yeah. I'd have to save up. Yeah. Say, hey, are you going to use that scrap of basswood over there? Yeah. But now, model stuff is expensive. Printing is expensive. You've come to some of my, like, fourth year reviews. Yeah. And we print out giant presentations. And, I mean, those things are $200, $300 to print all that stuff out. God, that's crazy. For those students. And that's at a, I think the cheapest that we have is essentially $1.50 a square foot for a color print. Yeah. And that's in the building. If you go somewhere else, like to a coffee shop or something, because you run out of time or you have to go on the weekends or whatever, it costs more. Okay. Well, let me just ask a question. All right. Because we wouldn't do that in my pro office. If we're doing a pinup and we do plenty of them, we don't print them out on our sweet color plotter, even though we have the ability to do that. Sure. What we do is we have a giant TV and everybody presents digitally. I mean, that's kind of how it is. Yes. And I go, it, when faced with the Hey, you're a student, yeah. and I think I read, I don't know if, how, if it's still true. I know I read this a couple of years ago, that an architectural education is the most expensive degree that you can get, mostly because it takes so many years to get it. Mm. Most classes, you have that hit up front to buy your books, and you're kind of done. And you're like, nope, you guys are going to have like a one or two or $300 print bill every couple of weeks that nobody knows about, or at least at the end of every major project that you're going to have, you're going to have some big whopper bill. Yeah. And you have little incremental bills. Yeah. We bought a piece of vellum or we used a, a piece of trace. And since we hand drew, that was not a, a hard budgetary hit to me when I was in school. No. That kind of number, the, the $200 thing, let's say, is 
once a semester, maybe, maybe twice, but typically that's when there's one project and you do the one project all semester. And at midterm, it's not as much. It might be $100 because you're printing half as much stuff because you don't have as much. And then at the end of the semester, we have everything. It's $200 or whatever. Does nobody ever consider just doing it digitally? Uh, yes and no. It's hard. It's hard to review those things digitally when you've got a whole bunch of people. I'm about to do one in two days from now. I'm doing my first one that I've done digitally on a big screen. It gets 118 by 67 inches. Like, it's a giant screen. Yeah. But the resolution is garbage. I mean, not garbage, but it's not the same. Mm -hmm. And so we'll find out. But during COVID, it was fine. I was looking at the screen. But the problem is, is I find that people don't have any sense of scale. The students don't have any sense of scale. So they lose all that knowledge about just today we were doing a dry run and they had one drawing on the whole screen and it was something that should have been an eighth an inch. And it was, (laughs) it was like six feet wide, you know, and you're like, this is giant and there's no no information in this thing that I couldn't get if it was a whole lot smaller. Yeah. So it's a challenge, I think. And it's different in school also because the things that you're presenting are different. What we're trying to talk about is not the same as a, a professional presentation. It's just different. Right. And so it's just a different. Well, I even look at, it's funny, I didn't even realize that this would come up today, but I was thinking about jobs that I had prior to the one I'm currently in. And they were small offices, and we didn't have a big plotter in any of those, but we had the ability to print stuff out. And we did have a like a 30 by 42 HP, so we could print something out. Mm-hmm. And we would know it takes seven minutes per sheet. You'd have to do the math to make sure that like, yeah. what's going to happen. And, and I want to say the number of times that we had clients come in, and we had drawings on the table, and we reviewed them 100% of the time. That's how it was. Mm-hmm. That does not happen mm-hmm. where I work now. Like, rarely. Do we pin up any kind of large format drawings on the wall when we're talking to clients ever? And we actually Mm -hmm. present live a lot of times. So we'll model and we'll have the 3D model open and running. So that as we're saying, this is what we're doing. We're spinning it around and zooming in and out. And like, it's much more immersive than static 2D drawings on the wall. Sure. I was just kind of curious if, if you thought that was an evolution, that was a possibility, that's something that. Because that seems, it's so expensive to go to school. Yeah. And I think there are some, but it changes, I think, your whole understanding of things when you don't get to print things out and actually look at them and compare them, right? That you just don't get. And that's that's one of the big lessons that I think we all learned from COVID. Because COVID was a scale-free environment. Yes. There's no idea. Yeah. You know, it, that is fair because I don't like looking at things on, if I go to your desk and I'm looking at like CAD files or whatever. I don't like looking at that stuff on the screen. I don't want to review plans on a screen. I don't even like Bluebeam. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I love the software. It's awesome software. But I'd much rather some printed out that I can yeah. write on because I'm old school that way. And it's just, it suits the way that I was indoctrinated into this process. So one of the things I noticed is that people who spend all the time looking at the screen, like they don't know pen weights. They don't know like near and far. Like mm-hmm. I don't understand how people, they'll be in Revit and they're looking at stuff. And I was like, some kind of weird axonometric view we're looking at here. Like, I can't even understand. Like, how can you tell scale and proportion and ratio? And like, you can't do that because this is the jank view that you're looking at on your screen. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to go, well, maybe in their brain, it makes sense to them the way a true perspective drawing makes sense in my brain because that's, but there's some evidence suggests that no, it doesn't. Yeah, but again, I don't think it does. It doesn't translate. Yeah. And that's why I think it's... That's why it's important in school to use the drawings. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it makes sense. Anyway, I know that sounds old school and terrible, but now during the semester, though, if you want to print something out on 11 by 17 or 8.5 by 11 or whatever comes out of the coffee machine over there, that's fine. I'll review it and look at it and draw on it and that kind of stuff. I'm not asking you to like, yeah. Or I'll look at screens to review things and can spin around their model and things like that. But typically when it comes to the end, you just want to put it all up. Because there's also an exercise in that of it's not a slideshow, it's a presentation. So I've got multiple things on sheets and it's, it's a graphic exercise. I like that. I like the way that you say that. Not just, here's my floor plan on one slide. Here's my floor plan on the next slide. Yeah. Floor plans one, two, three, and there are all these different slides you can't. And reviewing those kinds of things is terrible where you're like, okay, can you go back to slide four? Yeah. And you're like slide 20 and let's look at this and then go to slide 16 and let's compare those things. It just doesn't work. It's not conducive for education. All right. That all makes sense. But anyway. All right. So should we do like a wrap up or a summary here before we move on to our our critical thinking exercise <laughs> is for this episode? Yeah. I don't know how we do that for summing up two episodes, but I think realizing figuring out what you want to do and that there are different ways to get through your architectural education, spend some time looking into that and then realizing that once you start, it will be a lot of work and you do have to look at things from a different perspective, especially in the first part, the first years, that's what's happening. Starting architecture school is about expanding your mind and retraining your brain to do things in a different way mm -hmm. and that it will continue to evolve over the next four to five years or six years. But in the beginning, it is really about totally almost breaking you down and building you back up in a kind of a different way and just realize that that's the process and lean into it and it'll benefit you more so than trying to resist it i think resistance is futile that kind of thing yeah exactly you know look here's how i'll put my bow on it if people say hey this one thing about doing should i do it and like what should i expect and i'd say yeah you should do it it was awesome i loved it you know, all the things that half the time people describe as horror stories. I go, man, those are some of my best memories. Like all the things you're saying that were terrible. I go, those weren't terrible. They were great. <laughs> they were awesome. Yeah. I mean, what it meant a lot of time is I was trading, running around, goofing off, playing Frisbee in the quad for a different type of something that was rewarding and enriching to me. I, I never hated any of the part of my, and you mm -hmm. know, maybe that's hats off to UT for being an awesome program and hats off to the people that I was in school with for being awesome people. But I go, man, not too many people get to go through that sort of studio environment where it's so, you're so entrenched in everything's brand new and everything's a possibility and there is no right answer and you can explore whatever you want to explore, but have a point to it. You know, one of the things we said we're going to talk about, which maybe, I don't know, there's not going to be a part three, but because we said, oh, we're going to talk about possible classes that you should take, which this episode's just kind of, they're just there's so much to cover, but I will tell you the, the one skill that I want everyone, I'd say, work on your communication skills, learn how to stand in front of the room, learn how to articulate yourself, learn how to move from A to B to C to D in a narrative way, as opposed to, I did this, and then I did this, and then here's this. I can see that. That's why it's there for me to look at. I don't need you to say, this is what it is, because I can see it. Why do I need to see it? Why does it matter? What's the point? of you having it up on the wall. Mm -hmm. Nobody teaches architecture students that. And it's so critical to you having an awesome job when you're 45 years old. <laughs> Some of us try. Some of us try to teach students well, that. Well, it's not a blanket <laughs> comment that it zero happens, but. I know. I was like, I got a lecture or two like that. But yeah. And I think the one thing about that would be, to me, reflecting on the way you're saying about it, is that you were sort of well-suited for architecture. And I think that's the one thing that you'll find out within that first year as to whether or not 
architecture suits you as a lifestyle. And really it's about, can you commit to it? Are you committed to that sort of ideology and whatever? And that's what you find out in that first year. And if, I think if you don't love it in the first year, that may be a sign that maybe you should stick around. And I mean, that happens, but I just, it's, I think that's part of it. If you're miserable doing these things, I don't think it's going to get any better. Yeah, maybe it's not for you. Yeah, you should be happy to miss playing Frisbee on the quad because you're hanging out talking about all these new ideas and coming up with crazy concepts for cubic volumes of shade and light and texture. Here's the one caveat to that. And this is a very real thing. And I'm going to throw this out there like just a splatter on the sidewalk and we're going to step over it and move on, right? But you're just going <laughs> to leave, leave it. Yeah, okay. But it's the idea that Everybody kind of presents the idea of architecture school and why you would want to be an architect and the things that you go through when you are learning how to be an architect is because you're going to be a designer and you're going to design buildings. That is not true. This is true. That is not true. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff you do your first year are really kind of visual, spatial, communication, clarity. There's a lot of that mm. stuff that kind of happens. Yeah, I gotcha. Man, my office is full of people that don't design stuff. They're aware of it and they understand it, but they're like, it's not my bag. It's not what gets me motivated. Mm -hmm. So... If you are that person that goes and you go, I don't dig on all of this, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be a good architect or you can't find a place where you're going to have a very rewarding hmm. professional life within the industry. This is true. It just means that you do an eggs on platforms, not your jam. And there's another place for you to fit within the profession. So I won't argue with that. That's true. Yeah. Okay. There we go. We're going to step over that and we're going to go to the final critical thinking exercise for today. And, um, I'm not sure it's so critical, but okay. It is. It is. Oh, this is, this one's actually a good one because okay. everybody has an answer. Then you start breaking down. They're like, well, I don't know. And then I thought about some more things. I'm like, there's a lot of meat on this bone. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for people who don't work in my office and don't know this, when I try to work through these, I normally pester the people around me with, Hey, what do you think about this? And then if they start talking about it and I can play off with them, I go, okay, maybe there's something, maybe there's something to this one. So now that I'm in my new office, I have, I have an office, but it's, it's an office in every conceptual way that an office is, but I don't have glass on the front and the wall between my office and the partner or principal next to me is four feet tall. So I can stand up and I can look and we can have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Me and there's three of us principals that sit side by side. We call them boat slips. It's still, I have a 10 by 15 foot space, but anybody can just walk into it. So on my back wall. Half the wall is this big, giant, tackable surface, and the other half is this giant glass magnetic marker board. Mm -hmm. So when I think of these, I'll forget them. I'll go, ooh, that's a good one. I got to remember that one. And then I forget it because I go on to something else, and that's just what it is. So I started writing them down on this marker board. So I currently have about six of these written on the marker board behind my desk in my office. And everybody comes over. Now they know that this is how this goes. So they look at it, and they kind of take a stab at like which one they like. The one we're doing today, literally everyone is going, that's the one that they want to do. They all want to talk about that one. All right. So you ready? I mean, I, I told you what it is right before we started recording it. Yeah. And well, you and I have had a little bit of a chat about this one before, but here we go. Yeah. This is a, would you rather? And it is, would you rather have greasy hair or bad breath? Admittedly, two terrible things. And when I mean greasy, I mean like, ooh. Like, not just, I woke up and I didn't have time to take a shower. I'll put a little powder on my hair or whatever. I mean, I'm talking about greasy. Mm -hmm. 
ugh, just uh, like think about when you see someone with like their hair almost looks wet. It's so greasy. That's what I mean. I mean, we're gross, greasy. Mm-hmm. And bad breath is not like, oh, what did you eat for lunch? I mean, like you're like, oh, you should see a doctor for that. Mm-hmm. You know, that level bad breath. So the question is, mm-hmm. greasy hair or bad breath? You're up. I don't know. I had a selection and then now I think I changed my mind, but then I'm not sure if I can loophole it the way I want to loophole it. So, and it may be easier because I'm male, but I'm going to go with greasy hair. Yeah. Because I can cut it very, very short. It's still greasy though, but yes, it's not, it's short. But if I peel it back, it's almost a buzz cut. You're not really going to notice it. Yeah, but look at your hair now. Can you imagine? I know, but if it was greasy, I would cut (laughs) it. This is the point is how I would deal with it, right? That's my loophole cheat. Okay, what if we say your hair, since we're answering this question today, it's the hair you've got today. It can't change from what it is now? Yeah, I, I still think maybe because I feel like I could, I think I could manage that better. Then I could just like horribly, terribly offensive bad breath. Death breath. Yeah. Okay. I feel like there's more ways to combat the greasy hair aspect. If I gel the business out of it and it just looks wet all the time and then that's okay because I could just live with it. I think I could manage it better than having bad breath. Because even if I'm just when I'm like popping mints all day, but if it's that bad, it's... You can't pop mints. You have bad breath. Well, Doesn't matter that. what you do. You have bad breath. You have yeah. greasy hair. No matter what you do, your hair is greasy. Yeah, I still think I'm going to choose that one because, again, I think I could. Right. I think I could manage it better. And if, if I can cheat, you can't cheat. Well, I'll cut it short, and it won't really matter. If I can't, then I'll just. There's no cheating. I'll cut my hair before we it's have this late. conversation I next time. It <laughs> like okay, <laughs> let me tell you what my answer is, uh-huh. and then we can start to unbox maybe some considerations since I've had more time to think about it. Yeah. So I almost think, and I don't like the reasons for my answer. Let me just go on record for saying. I think that bad breath is the way to go. And the reason I say bad breath is 100% of everything you do that everybody sees you doing, if you have greasy hair, how dirty are you? They might think you have bad breath because you're so dirty looking with your greasy hair. Mm. If you had bad breath, Mm. most people aren't going to know. And if you know you had bad breath. Until that one point when they get close enough that you talk to them. Yeah, but so the people I've been talking to, we're like, how far away, if it's really bad, how close do you have to be before somebody's just like, oh, God, having to cover their nose or... I mean, if it's really bad, it's not that close. I mean, I'm pretty sure that I've dealt with some people that, like, I'm pretty sure they ate garbage and then drank coffee and then came and talked to me. And I'm thinking across the table is, that's about as close as you can get and get away with having rank death breath. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like around three to four feet. And I go, how many of the people I deal with get within that three to four foot circle of intimacy to where they're like, you're dying. <laughs> like whatever it is. Yeah. Meanwhile, a hundred people are in my office. A hundred people know that I have greasy hair. Mm. Right. And then how often does that person who violates that or violates the, I'm already jading the jury here. <laughs> of all the people that actually get within that three to four foot circle. How often do they get in that three? So they might not know that I have bad breath all the time. They're just like, that dude, occasionally he's got some bad breath. Mm. So I go, that seems like an obvious answer for me. But then I started thinking about it in a way that made me not feel so good about myself (laughs) for choosing that answer. 
Because part of it is there's like a quantity versus a quality because the bad breath is way worse for a very small number of people. So it's kind of like I'm choosing an answer saying, I'd rather lots of people not think I'm gross than just a couple of people absolutely know that I'm, it's a horror show. Mm. So there's a volume benefit that I'm taking into consideration. But then the other thing is like the idea of perception versus reality. I'm more concerned about what people see than what people Mm -hmm. in an intimate environment. So I'm not even bringing up the idea that like for me, it was just a professional consideration. But if you've got a significant other. That's what I was thinking about. It's like your choice rules out any overtly intimate situation with people. They're like, it's garlic night for both of us. And so everybody's got gross breath. I don't know. Or you're never going to get to that level with someone because nobody's going to want to get close enough to the dying embers or dying Just, whatever that's inside yeah, your mouth. The death in your mouth. Yeah. To want to do that. Right. Yeah. So. So I actually think the right answer probably is greasy hair, even though I hate that as an answer. I want that. I want bad breath to be the right answer. <laughs> Well, I mean, again, it could be. I just think it would, well, I don't know. Because they're both going to impact the dynamic of your life just in different ways, probably. Maybe you just need to find, make, you know, your significant other needs to have COVID and have lost their sense of smell and never regained it. And then you're golden. You can put an ad in the the penny saver. Recently divorced individual. Craigslist, yeah. I'm looking for someone with no. Broken olfactory, yes. No sense of smell. Come my way. Uh, My answer, really, I go, uh, I'd rather have bad breath because less people are going to be impacted by me having bad breath than greasy hair. But the greasy hair is kind of superficial compared to the bad breath. So I think greasy hair is probably the right way to go. Yeah, I was just thinking, even if you were going to stay superficial, could I overcome having my greasy hair by being really funny, by being really nice, by doing whatever? I feel like, and this is, again, this is a terrible thing to say, I feel like it may be easier to overcome the greasy hair than it would be the bad breath there's nothing you could do that would make make it nice enough for someone to want to get close to you to be like okay i'm gonna suffer through i guess to me that's much more offensive to the other person yeah right the bad breath is than the greasy hair my greasy hair doesn't impact anybody really well it's also more memorable i can only think of one moment in my life where somebody had such greasy hair that something happened as a result of the greasy hair and it was hilarious and i still think about it from time to time Mm -hmm. But every person yeah. I've been who, like, they had bad breath, I feel like I've been wounded. Or, like, it's, I have a mental scar. Yeah. It was so profoundly terrible. It's still with me. I remember that, though. Like, I, yeah, yeah. I might have seen a bunch of people that have what I would call greasy hair, but I don't remember yeah, that. You but move on. I remember almost every person I come in contact with that has horrible, horrible, like, just coffee breath when it's really bad like that. Yeah. And we're talking about something way worse than that. And you're like, I got to stay away from that person. You start avoiding them yeah. because their breath is so bad. Yeah. All right. So greasy yeah. hair is the right way to go. Okay. All right. Well, I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call today's show a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 132, Starting Architecture School, Part 2. Special thanks to Construction Specialties for their support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Construction Specialties is so focused on the importance of mastering movement that they have created a series of CEUs specifically on mastering movement. Each course is worth one AIA HSW and is part of the Mastering Movement Academy by CS. Visit MasteringMovement.net to take this and other courses. 
We would also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms. So hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish an educational new episode. And while you're there, please take a moment and leave us a five-star Architecture Studios awesome rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this dynamic episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.